I have a friend, Corey, who, who's a missionary, and he depends on God to, to stir in other people. Who he, last year, he, felt he was running a, a, a landscaping business in Lethbridge, and he felt like God was calling him to sell it. And so he sold it. But he also felt like the Holy Spirit was telling him to give all the profits from his business away. And he did. I have another friend, Jason, who, who adopted children into his family because God's Word says to care for the widows and the orphans. And I hear these stories and think their lives are so remarkable. How do they do that? Their faith and trust in God must be so deep. How come I can't do that? How do they set aside everything that seems to make sense and trust that whatever God has invited them to do, that it will actually happen? Where we experience this tension between letting go of what we think is natural so that something supernatural can occur in us and through us. Let me say that again. We experience this tension between letting go of what we think is natural so that something, something supernatural can occur in us and through us. And I think Peter experiences this tension in this passage where we enter this scene in Matthew 14 where earlier in the day Jesus has just found out that his cousin John the Baptist had, had been beheaded. But it didn't stop Jesus' ministry. He goes and he meets this, a group of 5,000 men, close to 10,000 people, they estimate. And he feeds them with five loaves and two fishes. And this miraculous event happens. And then the day comes to an end, and Jesus decides he needs to have some prayer time. And so the passage in, this, in some translations says that he made the disciples get into the boat and cross the, cross the sea. Now the Greek here is probably more closely aligned with this idea of he compelled them or he convinced them to get into the boat. Either way, though, we really don't know why Jesus sent the disciples away. Some commentators have suggested that maybe Jesus just needed to get away because of this growing voice of, from the public that wanted Jesus to be this political Messiah, and he just needed to spend time with the Father to realign himself with the kingdom. My personal opinion might be that, that maybe he just needed to get away because he was grieving and mourning the death of his cousin that he just found out about that day. Either way, we don't really know why, what was said or why Jesus sent the disciples away. Whatever reason, though, Jesus uses that time by himself to pray. And the disciples respond to that compulsion by Jesus with obedience, as good disciples would. And they began to cross the Sea of Galilee through the night. We read, a bit later in, in the we read that a bit later in the night, a storm rolls in, which wouldn't have been that uncommon in the Sea of Galilee. And it begins to push the boat to the middle of the sea. Now, the Sea of Galilee is only about 10 kilometers wide. It is not, it is not a big sea. So when Scripture says that they were a considerable distance, think the boat was probably two to three kilometers away. But the wind and the waves were beginning to, in the, were beginning to blow and crash against this boat, who was being captained by these experienced fishermen. Now, it reminded me of a time about 20 years ago. My parents lived uh, in the lower mainland in Vancouver. And while they lived there, they owned a boat. And they, they sold their trailer, and, and, uh, and they decided that they were going to do their camping on, on the ocean instead. And so whenever I would go to visit them, we would go tour along the coast and, and I would go, we would go crab fishing and we would enjoy the scenery that makes, up the, makes the West Coast so beautiful. One trip, though, 
One trip, I had brought this young lady to meet my parents for the first time. And I was super eager to impress, impress this girl that I'd only been dating for a few months. And I, she'd never been to Vancouver either, and so I was showing her the sights and sounds of Vancouver, which included a boat trip. My parents took us on this trip, and we went, explored some of the, the West Coast, and we got into the open water. And before you know it, the wind started to rise and the waves got a little choppy. And we, we got to the point where we weren't going to capsize, but the swells were six to ten feet large, which, was, which seemed pretty significant coming from an Alberta boy. Now, one of the things that I need, I, you need to know about me is that I get motion sickness really easy. Like, if I'm on a swing at a, at a playground, I can't do it for more than like three minutes because I, okay, I'm going to just put, let me walk on solid ground. I get, I get motion sickness easily. And so as this boat was rising and falling with the waves, and as I looked on the horizon and saw that there was real no end in sight of this particular adventure, I could feel this, this deep sense of um, intestinal discomfort. And so I tried all the tactics that, that I knew about to, to alleviate seasickness. I would calmly get onto the deck and take a big breath of fresh air and let it out. No, that's not working. Went to the center of the boat where, where the, the rocking was at its, mo at its least rocky point. That didn't help. Started just pounding back water because, I, I mean, I tried everything to try and alleviate some of this, this motion sickness that I was experiencing. Meanwhile, I have not given any sort of impression that I'm struggling the way that I am because I'm trying to impress this new girl. And so I'm, I'm doing whatever I can. And, and you know, it's one thing to, to have this, this mentally to say, yeah, I want to impress the girl when your stomach is saying something entirely different especially when your stomach is just seems to be so concerned about feeding the fish rather than impressing the girl. Now, ultimately, that young lady who I took was able to look past that experience because we eventually ended up getting married. And as a born and raised Alberta boy, I realized very quickly that, quickly that turbulent waters are not a pleasant thing. And it struck me that, that some of these guys in the boat, like Matthew, for example, the guy who's writing this gospel, he's a tax collector. He's not a fisherman. I kind of wonder if that's why he hasn't mentioned himself in this particular story. He's just like, I'm not bringing myself up at all in this story. But we see this, see this story in this, this event of these experienced fishermen being pounded by the wind and the waves in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And so as the storm rolled in, Jesus likely would have noticed the storm during his prayer time, probably between the timeline of 9 to 12 p.m., which means that for some reason, Jesus waits like six hours until shortly before dawn that he finally goes out to them. The literal, literal translation of this particular moment is, is that Jesus waited until the fourth watch. would have been between 3 and 6 a.m. Now, if there's one thing that we can, we can observe in Jesus' ministry is that, that he's never in a rush. Lazarus dying and John 11, Jairus' daughter in Matthew 5, this event, Jesus never seems too urgent or panicked. He just seems to wait to the last minute. And I wonder if Jesus waits because he wants to make sure that, that if there was ever any reasonable explanation for, for this event to be resolved, 
that it's removed. And that all that is left is a supernatural power of an all-powerful God alive and at work on earth. And so Jesus, in his lack of urgency, meanwhile these, men, these 12 men are panicked on the boat, Jesus walks out to these 12 men. And as they see him, they immediately assume it's a ghost. Now the Greek word here that, that's used in Matthew is the word phantasmal. It's the only time it's used in the, in the New Testament. It's where we get the word phantom or ghost. But in the Old Testament, as I said, this is only used in the New Testament this one time. In the Old Testament, this word is actually used several times, and it means deception. So something is happening in this particular event where the disciples are beginning to think that there is some sort of spiritual warfare event taking place trying to deceive them. I'm going to talk more about that next week when we explore this, but the disciples see this figure. And they assume that it's a ghost to deceive them, and immediately they are filled with terror. And Jesus uses the statement that we see throughout Scripture reserved for anyone who is about to have a miraculous encounter with God. Take courage. But then he says something even more profound. It is I. Or a more accurate translation would be, I am. Take courage. I am. Don't be afraid. It's an acknowledgement that Jesus is in fact who he claims to be. He is I am. Jesus is reusing language that the disciples would have understood from Exodus 3 when Moses encountered God at the burning bush. Jesus is communicating at this point that I am here. I'm always here. I'm with you now. I'm not leaving you. I am. And it's in this statement that I think we began to see that faith isn't just a decision or an action, but that it's a declaration of an identity. Faith isn't, a decision, isn't just a decision or an action, but that it's a declaration of an identity. Again, I'm going to spend some more time exploring that next week. But it's after this I am statement where things get really interesting. Because Peter, God love Peter. Have you ever had one of those moments where you said something and you wish that as soon as you said them you could take that back? I had a moment happen to me a couple of years ago when I went to Peter's driving in Red Deer. I was taking a class in Red Deer and I was heading home and I stopped to get a milkshake. And... Uh, and, and I rolled through the drive-thru and I paid the, the, the lady at the till and, and she said, here you go, ma'am. And, and her look of embarrassment, my look of confusion over my face and look of embarrassment on her face, I think communicated everything that needed to be said. I mean, I had a beard, okay? And, 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 and she was... And, and, I, and I, I think Peter was kind of the pioneer of, of, this, of saying things and immediately thinking, why did I just say that? So Peter, even though we've already established that, they, that the disciples in the boat thought that there was some possibility of deception occurring, that there's something happening that they're not sure about, Peter and his, only Peter, says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Now, if you're an evil spirit, isn't that exactly what you're hoping the person says to you? So why would Peter extend this invitation? Why would he say, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water? 
I think there's only two real possible conclusions that I think warrant this type of invitation from Peter. One, Peter was a fool. Or, two, he believed that who he was talking to was in fact God in the flesh. And I think there's probably enough scriptural support to argue both sides with Peter's life. <laughs> but I think what Peter discovered in this call to faith was Jesus was, Jesus was that. If he really believed who Jesus claimed to be, he needed to get out of the boat. If Peter really believed that Jesus was who he claimed to be, he needed to get out of the boat. Faith isn't just a decision or an action, but it's a declaration of an identity. Now, can you just imagine the wind howling around them, the wind, the waves pounding the boat, the salt water splashing in your face, and, and you hear this yelling over the wind, Come. I kind of wonder what kind of mental hurdles were going through Peter's mind as, as he convinced himself that this was a good idea. And maybe he had this, this inner Matt Damon moment whispering in his ear, all you need is 20 seconds of insane courage. And the whisper of Jesus in the other ear, come. And so Peter, as he puts his hands on the side of the boat and he lifts one foot out of the edge of the boat and the rising of the falling of the waves in the boat, and now he steps out with the other side. He's only got five seconds left of insane courage. Now he's out of the boat. And I wonder at what point did the water feel like it was going to hold his weight? As Peter climbs over and holding onto the side of the boat, and his 20 seconds are almost up. And finally he lets go. The boat begins to drift away, and he's, now he's standing on water. He turns around, and he begins to see Jesus, and he walks towards him. Now, I think this is an important question to ask regarding Peter. What kind of man lets go of a perfectly good boat in the middle of a storm to walk to his potential death? A fool or a man of faith? Well, probably a little bit of both. And Paul talks about the wisdom of the Spirit as foolishness to the world. Peter letting go of the boat becomes this incredible expression of faith where he, chooses to, he chose to believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be. He chose the identity of Jesus as faithful. And it changed Peter's identity to be faith-filled. So, what is the boat that you and I hold on to? What is the thing that prevents us from being faith-filled like Peter? Just like Peter, we need to let go of ourselves and put our faith in a God who, who wants to do incredible things in us and through us if we're willing to put our faith in Him. So how do we do that? How do we intentionally choose a supernatural faith that moves us into a place where things will completely fall apart unless God shows up? And I think for many of us, myself included, the thought of letting go of that boat is incredibly uncomfortable. Where God-sized dreams place us in a position where we aren't in control of our situation anymore. Where we don't get to control the results. But rather in a place where we are forced to depend on God moving instead of us. And the more I think about faith, the more I think that God is less concerned with the result and more concerned with the work that the Holy Spirit is doing inside of us. God is less concerned with the result and more concerned with the work that he is, in, he is doing inside of us. 
When Peter got out of the boat, do you think that Jesus was excited that Peter walked on water? Sure. But what I think really excited Jesus was Peter's obedience and the faith that he showed when Jesus said, come. Peter let go of his control of the situation. Control is just when, when we manipulate people or events to try to get the results that we desire. And the reason we do that is because for most of us, when we are in control, it's comfortable. Faith is letting go of that control, which ultimately makes you and I uncomfortable. So what is the thing that you put your faith in? What is your boat? Is it finances? Friends? Family? Your health? The church? Conventional wisdom says that having financial security is important. Having a circle of friends is valuable. Having a good job is worth pursuing. And I want to point out that none of these things are bad or sinful things. When it becomes our idol, though, when it becomes a thing that we put our faith in over Jesus, that's when it becomes problematic. The boat became an idol that we put our faith in rather than God. Faith puts us in a posture of declaring who God is, and it reminds us that the boat that we are putting our faith in is just a shadow of who God is and the miraculous power that He wants to display in us and through us. Discomfort isn't an, isn't, is not an unhealthy thing. Disobedience is. Now, I'm not suggesting, real quick, I, I'm not suggesting that if you are living a comfortable life, that you are living a disobedient life. But I think it's important that we use this time to ask the question, am I so in control of my life and the results of my life that comfort has become my idol? Often what happens is we become so captivated by protecting the boat that we forget to see who actually gave us the boat. And we develop this self-protectionistic mentality that destroys our faith. And so we're forced to ask this question, am I living a faith-filled life? Comfort and control for us often become a security blanket for us where if, any, where if everything is falling apart, we can at least depend on these things. I can at least depend on my nice house or my bank account or my friends. What if God invited you to follow him? Would you be able to walk away from your house? Would you be willing to give more generously to God? Would you be willing to prioritize Jesus over your friends? Letting go of those things many would claim is foolishness. Yet the invitation to Peter and I think to us, is to let go of all those things. Let go of the security and safety of the boat. Let go of the comfort that says the safe place is inside the boat. Let go of the control that says inside the boat is a place where I can be in charge. And it was in Peter's letting go where God showed up and a miraculous event occurred. So I think there's, to wrap up, I, want, I think there's four things that we can do to deepen our faith expression with Jesus. One, be available. You know, most people, when they read this story from Matthew 14 and, and they see Peter, they see it as a, as a picture of failure. I look at this story and I think, boy, there was 11 other people in the boat who watched the miraculous event happen. Peter was the only one who was available. 
He was the only one willing to leave his security, his comfort, and control. I look at Peter and I see a man who made himself available. Peter made himself available to God and was willing to do whatever it took to put his faith in Jesus. Two, be obedient. Most of us, I think, would say, yeah, I want to be a faith-filled person. And we sang the song earlier, I, I surrender all. Tim Hawkins, a comedian, he, he rewrote the song in a satirical way and said, I surrender some. And as much as I'd love to sing that song truthfully and, and, and refocus my heart on, on, on what I long to surrender, it's probably more accurate. I surrender all except my finances. I surrender all except my discomfort. I surrender all except for, the, except for pain. Peter's faith was, was rooted in his, abil- his availability to do what God wanted. But it was experienced when he said yes. It was experienced when he took a step of faith in obedience to Jesus' call to come. Three, take a risk. I'm convinced that faith has the potential to make us look foolish. Part of a, a group of people, and we did a kind of a prayer ministry, and we were assigned different sections of Calgary and area, and we would go and we would just pray for the community, and if there was opportunities to pray for people, we, would, we were encouraged to do that. And, and so the, <clears throat> excuse me, and the area that I was assigned to was Banff. And, and so I was, me and a few other people, we were wandering around Banff, and we were praying for the, the, the city of Banff. And, and I noticed that there was a gentleman who was sitting on a park bench to the left of myself, and I thought, boy, he's by himself. And, and I felt like the Holy Spirit was saying, Ryan, go pray for him. No, I'm not doing that. That's, I'm not, and, and no, pray for him. And I did, really didn't want to. But I remember in that moment, it, leading up to that prayer gathering, that I said, I wanted to be available. I wanted to be obedient. And whatever the Holy Spirit was, was telling me to do, I wanted to, to, to be faithful to that. And so as I, I, kinda, as I began to approach this, this gentleman, you know, I kind of had this, the, the, the 20 seconds of courage moments myself where I, I didn't want to, but I, I okay, I'm going to make it happen. So as I approached this gentleman, and I said, excuse me, sir, I wonder if I could pray for you. He, he was reading a newspaper or something, and he looked up at me, and I, his answer shocked me. Looked at me and said, absolutely not. And I was... I was surprised. I was shocked by the rejection. I mean, after all, I, I felt like the Holy Spirit had said I should go pray for this guy. And I felt like a fool. But I took a risk. Which brings me to my last point. Submit and trust the results. I believe God is often less concerned with the result and more concerned with the work that the Holy Spirit is doing inside of us. God called you and I to be people of faith. God wants to do in this world. You know, I, I would love to be able to say, yeah, I prayed with the guy and I led him to Christ and he's, you know, he's, now, a, a, he's now a missionary somewhere. I have no idea, but certainly he, did, he was not open to, for, to engage in any sort of conversation with me. But God is calling us to be faithful people. He controls the results. Claiming that we are faithful people is one thing. 
but being people who set aside their control, set aside their comfort, set aside their security, who are willing to step outside of the boat so that God can do what he needs to do in us, that's true faith. Be available. Be obedient. Take a risk. Trust that God will bring the results that he wants. You might be surprised by the results God comes up with if you accept his invitation to come and get out of the boat. I want to invite the worship team to come on up on the stage, and they're going to lead us in one more song. As we have our reflective time, I want to encourage you to reflect on what is your boat. And if you aren't sure, maybe ask that the Holy Spirit would reveal that to you. Where is God calling you to be available, to be obedient, to take a risk, and leave the results in his hands? Worship team, you guys can come on up. Let's all uh, stand together and sing our last song.
feet may fail and fear surrounds me You never fail and you won't start Call upon your 